This is Jeremy Jung, and you're listening to Software Sessions. This episode was recorded at the Strange Loop Conference in St. Louis. Alina gave a fantastic keynote called How to Teach Programming and Other Things. Make sure to check it out after the episode. Oh, and if you ever get a chance, go to the City Museum in St. Louis. Look it up. It's an amazing playground. Enjoy the show. Today I'm here with Felina. Felina is an associate professor of computer science at Leiden University, and she's really passionate about programming education. This includes everything from promoting the power of spreadsheets to researching how to improve programming education for kids. Felina, welcome. Thank you, Jeremy. So the, the first thing I wanted to talk about is you have a reputation for being really into spreadsheets. Why are you so passionate about spreadsheets? Spreadsheets are the best programming language in the history of computing, really. People laugh if I say that, but it, it's very true. Spreadsheets are such a good programming language that people can just pick them up and dive straight in. Now imagine doing that for Java. First you have to in- install Eclipse, which is not easy, and then you open an IDE. What do you do? What do you even enter? Mm, Whereas right. if you open a spreadsheet, you, you know what you do. The, the concept is so intuitive. You just yeah. start with data and then, oh, a little calculation. Mm-hmm. Oh, I need more. Hey, maybe I need a pivot table. Oh, maybe I need Visual Basic. Nowadays, you can also script with JavaScript, mm. which is a little bit easier and closer to what more people might know than Visual Basic. Mm-hmm. So it just, this, the threshold of starting is so low. It's so easy to get in and then build bigger things. I actually think programming languages could learn quite a bit from how the Excel user interface mm. is designed. So that's kind of like the, I guess you could call it the onboarding experience where somebody, you show them a spreadsheet and you don't have to necessarily even tell them anything. They can kind of start to figure it out on their own and see like, oh, you know, I want to add numbers here. Or I want to do these kind of calculations. It's sort of so intuitive that they don't need to go through some complicated tutorial. I guess that's, that's one of the big things for you. Absolutely. Hmm. Do you know sort of the history of how people first got into spreadsheets? Like, how did, how did we come to that being a good solution? Yeah, so I know a story. I don't know if it's true, but okay. I can tell you the story I know. So I know the creators of VisiCalc. Mm. This was one of the first spreadsheet solutions. They were in a lecture about accountancy on a on a blackboard. Imagine okay. this big university lecture hall with a very big blackboard, mm-hmm. and a professor there was doing a financial calculation. Mm. So he was manually creating a spreadsheet, updating oh, a number. on the and blackboard. On the blackboard. Oh, okay. And then going to another cell, yeah. mm-hmm. not really a cell on the blackboard, right. uh, and updating the value there. And it was it was a financial calculation. Mm-hmm. So it was like, oh, let's say we sold 500 trucks today. Yeah. Oh, that's this amount of money. So what is our interest rate? Mm-hmm. And what is our... Um, Capital, we have to subtract, I yeah, don't know, finance. Yeah, yeah. But he was doing that on a blackboard. And as as the legend tells, mm-hmm. those two guys from VisiCalc, they knew computing, they knew programming. And they're like, wow, you could do this with a computer. Mm. And it would be so much easier. Oh, okay. And this apparently is how the first spreadsheet solution was Interesting. created. Interesting. So it's mapping like something you physically do into just just doing that same thing on a computer. Yeah, absolutely. It's very much based on this idea of bookkeeping that you yeah. do in already in rows and columns. Oh, so that's true. A, yeah. What we call a closeness of mapping mm-hmm. between a real situation outside of the computer, yeah. bookkeeping, mm-hmm. and an application on the computer. Yeah, and I would guess that we've had sort of this idea of rows and columns for hundreds or thousands or who knows how many years, right? And Taking all those sort of experiences, um, people have built something that really works for them, and all we did was put that on a computer, right? Yeah, absolutely. This and this idea of rows and columns goes way back. In my thesis, I had an example of a stone tablet mm. of I don't know three thousand before Christ, wow. um, where rows and columns of the I think it was Pythagorean triplets hmm. were on the stone table in this rows and wow, columns, spreadsheet-like okay. yeah. format. So it is really very old. So it's a spreadsheet on a tablet, but yes. a stone tablet. A stone tablet <laughs> on an iPad. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that's crazy. So another thing is early in your career, you sort of came to the realization, you, you worked at a financial company, right? Yeah, I did and, an internship there. Okay. I believe you were tasked to build a domain-specific language to help them do their job, right? True. And um, but you decided that they actually didn't need to have a new language or a new program built for them. And so, what I wanted to go into is is how did you come to that decision? How did you decide that what they had was good enough? So maybe first, let me explain 
why I in, what I initially thought because okay. I think that's interesting too because yeah. when I was in university I very much was told that non-programmers needed programmers to do anything mm. I'm not really sure if this is still thought in university, but I think this is still an image that is in the minds of many programmers that non-programmers cannot do anything. Mm. Oh, they don't even know how to double-click, <laughs> whatever. Uh-huh. They really need us, programmers yeah. to the rescue. That was my image. Mm-hmm. So my idea was not, oh, I'm going there to see what they're doing or to be interested in their... I was just like, oh, I can... It was... From a place of wanting to help them. And mm-hmm. it was very much, oh, I can build something. And they, they will be so happy because they don't know how to do anything. Yeah. Um, of course, and then I started to look, what are they already doing? And mm-hmm. they were doing quite powerful things with yeah. spreadsheet creating investment models and forecasting and all sorts of budgets. Mm-hmm. I was like, but they do know how to use computers. Mm-hmm. They do. They, they maybe don't do it in our way, the proper textual programming language way. But... I found it very empowering and it was also empowering for them. So oh, I don't need IT. I actually don't really like those people because it always <laughs> takes forever. I mm. go there and I ask for an application and mm-hmm. then six months later they've built it and yeah. it's not what I want. <laughs> so I don't need that. I can do it myself. So that I think made me think, okay, s- suppose I would build a domain-specific language for finance. It has to compete with what they already have. It has to be better than, mm-hmm. than Excel right. with some scripting and mm-hmm. some macros. Well, that's clearly not possible. Mm. So it's sort of you you realize that hey, these these people are way more competent than uh, we give them credit for. You yeah. know, they they know sort of their their domain. Um, they know how to use a computer. They know how to use a spreadsheet to get what they want. And so why am I inserting myself in and saying, um, I'm going to build you something, it's going to be great, but you got to wait for half a year to do yeah. it, right? Yeah, that's uh, like, I think on a broader scale past just spreadsheets, um, what are sort of key things you think people should look for um, when they're deciding on whether or not they need to build something new? Yeah, that's a very, very good question. Of course, there's not, not an easy answer to that. I think in many cases... Some Python scripts or some spreadsheets or some small things might mm-hmm. already be a solution mm-hmm. to many business problems. Yeah. And this is also something non-programmers know. Mm-hmm. You know, many places where some people have hacked some stuff together with a few scripts and mm-hmm. it, it actually really works. Yeah. Um, so I think the the guiding principle should really be to have a good conversation mm-hmm. with people that are going to use your tools. Yeah. And also take into account that requirements might change a lot. Yeah. So you need to make something that is easy to change mm-hmm. by them or by you. Right. And you also need to have the time. Maybe you have time now to build something, but do you have time every month to make some changes? Mm-hmm. Financial calculations can change very often. Right. So this empowering the user to make new changes should mm-hmm. really be at the, at the center of your design. Mm-hmm. And often, of course, it isn't. Mm-hmm. Just, oh, tell me what you need. Oh, this is what you need. Here it is. Yeah. yeah. But that was what I needed six months ago. Right. Now I need something else. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So so as programmers, you know, for us, I guess it's probably easier to build something that's very rigid, that the user can't change, right? But you're saying that what's actually better for the user is something that they can change on their own, which may not be custom software. Yeah, absolutely. I once chatted with the CTO of uh, SAP, and mm. he said that the most used button in the SAP software is the export to Excel button. Oh, because SAP is is quite a rigid system, yes. and it's be quite expensive to to get an extra report in. Mm-hmm. So what users do if it doesn't support the report they want, they dump their data into Excel and then they run their analyses there. And then maybe they manually up- upload it back mm-hmm. to the system, or they just have this shadow thing. Yeah. Yeah, SAP is an interesting example because I, I think SAP itself is very customizable, but maybe not easily so, I guess. Yeah, and probably <laughs> not by end users. Right, not so by end not, users. Not only because they wouldn't know how to, but also because you just can't. You mm-hmm. need to hire a consultant right. to, to tweak all the right r- buttons r- for you. Right, so they have built it to be easy for a consultant maybe to configure, but but definitely not for the end user. No. Right. Cool. The next thing I'd like to talk about is, you know, one of your big missions, I think, is to improve programming education for kids. One of the things that I think really distinguishes um, sort of your experience from other people's is uh, when it comes to programming for kids or just programming in general, I think a lot of people 
they have opinions, but they don't necessarily back it up with any real data. And so I wanted to kind of talk about your research in that field. Like what are the sort of specific things that you learned and the things that you researched in the papers and so on? Yeah, it's very true. I think there's there's a big case of survivorship bias in programming. So most people that made it into programming are people that taught themselves programming as a young age. Mm-hmm. In my talk yesterday, I yeah. talked about the Stack Overflow survey of 2019. Mm-hmm. If you look at their data, it shows that 85% of programmers have learned programming before the age of 19. Mm, so wow. Before college, probably. Mm-hmm. And a, a big part of that is going to be self-taught because many high schools across the world do not yet teach right. programming. Mm-hmm. So everyone that's in programming, to generalize a bit, many people in programming have taught themselves. Mm-hmm. And clearly this is possible because we have all done it. Mm-hmm. But that very much shapes the image of education. Most people don't have an image of how a programming lesson should look like mm-hmm. because they've never been in a programming lesson. Mm-hmm. The programming lessons they did were was probably like I learned programming. I had a book with basic listings and mm-hmm. I just typed them into the computer. Maybe people that are a little bit younger than me now, they look at YouTube, but it's mm-hmm. basically the same thing. They look at the program, they copy it. Yeah. Maybe they listen to the explanation on mm-hmm. YouTube or they teach each other in a group of friends. Yeah. So then we think, oh, oh, it was good enough for me to just have a book. Why wouldn't Mm -hmm. that be good enough for everyone? But clearly there's a big part of privilege there because my parents had a computer Mm -hmm. and they let me use that computer. Clearly I made mistakes and Mm -hmm. I wiped my dad's hard drive maybe (laughs) twice, but at least I can remember once that I did. He was very scared. He was was like, oh, be careful with the computer because he needed it for work. And still he let me play on it. So not everyone has a computer. Not everyone has parents that say, oh, 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 it's okay if you Mm -hmm. destroy my computer. Mm -hmm. Worst case, we buy a new one. So there's lots of privilege also in being able to teach yourself, having enough free time, having enough enough trust from parents, mm-hmm. but also fitting the image of someone that likes programming. Because mm-hmm. if you're if, if you're a white boy and you say, oh, what did you do all weekend, Peter? Mm-hmm. Well, I was up all night programming. Mm-hmm. Then most people say, okay, that, that seems like a thing you would do. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you're, let's say, a black girl and you say, oh, I spend all weekend programming, mm-hmm. you will definitely get a different reaction from yeah. adults. Sadly, that's mm-hmm. the way of the world. So maybe people say, oh, is that really for you? Mm-hmm. What were you making? Yeah. Wouldn't you rather be horseback riding or dancing? Mm-hmm. So that's also very much part of it, that yeah. some kids are encouraged to that, do that self-learning. Mm-hmm. It fits what people think they should do, and other right. kids are to a lesser extent. Mm-hmm. So I, I guess it's you're sort of saying that a lot of people who learned it, it was self-taught, and it's because they sort of had... I guess the privilege of having the computer or having people to support them, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that's the the right way or the the best way to teach it, right? Yeah. In fact, it's probably not the best way. Mm. There's quite some research that says that exploratory teaching or inquiry learning is not very effective. Mm. If you want to look into this, yesterday in my talk also, I mentioned a paper by a Dutch psychologist, Paul Kirchner, And the paper is called Why Minimal Guidance Doesn't Work. Hmm. And that sort of says it all. Minimal guidance, just having kids explore stuff, Mm -hmm. it doesn't work. And his study is a meta study, so it looks at other studies Mm -hmm. across fields, across ages of children. And they all say, well, we tried two things. We explained it to kids Mm -hmm. or we had them figure it out themselves. And yeah, it was more efficient if we just explained it to them. Hmm. So how did they how did they perform that study? How did they they measure um, which kids did better, and and how did they treat the kids differently to see who performed better? Yeah. So Kirchner's study is a meta study, so I can give you an, an example of one of the studies he talks mm-hmm. about in his paper. That's a paper by John Sweller, and in that paper they had two groups of children solve the same algebra equations. Mm -hmm. But the first group just got the algebra equation. So very typical, like X is 4X plus 7. What is X? Traditional algebra equation. Mm -hmm. And the other group got something like a recipe. So they say, Mm. oh, if you have something of this shape, what you can always do is, oh, you can move something to the other side Mm -hmm. of the equal sign, but then it has to be negative. I see. You may divide both sides by the same thing. Mm -hmm. So they got a recipe. And then they compared on a set of algebra equations who solves them best, mm-hmm. quickest and with fewer errors. And then the group that got the recipes 
did better. It's sort of what you expect because they got the recipe. Right. But the interesting thing is they did way, way better. So they solved mm. the problems in 20% of the time of the first group. That's pretty spectacular. Mm. And also, they did better on new algebra equations that looked really different from from the recipe. Mm -hmm. But of course, the things that were in the recipe, like move stuff to the other side of the equal sign, mm -hmm. that's stuff you need for anything. Yeah. So yeah. they could learn that from the recipes and mm -hmm. apply that in new problems as well. Right. And I think that's that's typically how people learn math, right? Is they when they're in either it's a teacher explaining or whether it's in the textbook, um, they will walk through a problem, right, in the textbook or what, you know, on the on the blackboard, whiteboard, whatever. Um, and then show you kind of this is how you solve a problem. And then they'll give you like a whole bunch of problems to solve, you know, probably for homework or something like that. Right. And so so this study is about math, right? For Programming, is there a specific study um, towards programming or um, how did you come to that? Yeah, so I know there are some studies mm -hmm. around programming. That example that I gave in math, that idea of a recipe is actually called a worked example. Mm. And I know there are studies, not by heart, but we can put them in the show notes sure. later. And there are also papers that have looked at the worked example effects for programming and it is also present there. Hmm. And so this this work effect example, could you kind of explain how they ran the tests? Like how did they sort of come to the conclusion or how you would, I guess, um, you know, if we could use say JavaScript or Python teaching someone that as an example, like how did they sort of run the study? Yeah, so I don't know these worked example papers by heart. Brianna Morrison is one of the people that has worked on this. Mm. I don't know them by heart, but typically mm -hmm. studies in education are run mm -hmm. in a similar fashion where mm -hmm. half of the group gets an intervention and yeah. the other half is a control group, mm -hmm. and then you can measure who does best. Right. So I imagine that these studies too were ran in a similar way. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Okay. You also have a few studies of your own, right? And one of those, I believe you were saying, it, it had to do with surveying um, code clubs. Um, people, I guess maybe you could kind of go into that and explain what that's about. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So one of the reasons I got very interesting in, interested in programming education is I was teaching in a code club myself on Saturday mm. afternoon every weekend. Mm. Um, and the kids were not making as much progress as I thought they could theoretically make. Mm. I was thinking of me as a 10-year-old, like, why didn't you work on this for six hours during the week? Why is it just, just one hour? So they were all really making progress. And then I got interested in why aren't they making mm -hmm. progress? And then I chatted to a bunch of people at many developers conferences, also people that run their own clubs. Mm -hmm. And I saw that they were all doing it in the same way that I was doing it, mimicking my own childhood experience. Mm -hmm. hey, hello, kids. Here's some books. Here's some tutorials. Pick a computer. Yeah. Go have fun. Right, I'm in right. the back drinking coffee. Okay. Feeling very good about community, doing community service. Yeah, so unguided education. Unguided okay. education, exactly. But of course, just asking a few people you know, that's not really scientific. Mm -hmm. So we set out to do a, a big survey across around the world. And where we asked people on Twitter, for example, and on mailing lists, mm -hmm. uh, the Coder Dojo, Coder Clubs, those mm -hmm. are groups of clubs that your club can be part of internationally. Mm -hmm. So we asked those people to um, send out our survey and we got a uh, hundred responses. Mm. And then we could actually see, okay, so how is programming to all that code clubs? That's also the title of our paper, by the way. And one of the things we found, unsurprisingly, is that 71% of the code clubs that we sampled indeed uses this independent learning style where each ch child works on their own projects and mm -hmm. if they have questions, they ask the mm -hmm. teacher but it is not direct front-facing front instruction right. mm -hmm. where a teacher explains something. So yeah. it's very much unschool-like. And are these kids coming in with no programming knowledge or kind of, I guess, what do the clubs look like? Oh, that's a good question. I think we asked this in the survey, but I don't know by heart. <laughs> uh, there's probably a difference between some clubs where kids have experience mm -hmm. and some clubs where kids do not have right. experience. One, one thing that we found that I do know by heart is that many of the clubs had mostly boys. Mm. Half of the club had more than half boys. Mm -hmm. So that is one of the issues also. We know that um, 
if you have lower self-efficacy, you have lower self-confidence, mm -hmm. then exploratory teaching is even worse for you mm. than if you already have some background knowledge and some confidence mm -hmm. because if you already know a few things yeah. and you're not worried that you'll look foolish, you can ask questions. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you, if you have no, no, nothing, you don't even know how to ask a question. Right. And if you ask a question, then maybe people will say, Oh, that's a stupid question. Mm -hmm. How can yeah. you not know that? Right. Yeah. So that's that's even more detrimental for a specific group mm -hmm. girls that's already underrepresented. Mm. So for the students that it was more of a guided learning, whether this is the study or whether this would be your own experience, how would you start teaching kids? Like what would you start teaching them as far as programming goes? Yeah, so that's, that's of course, a very interesting question. And we, we as a field, not just we, my research group, mm -hmm. we, we don't really know yet. Mm -hmm. So for mathematics, we're sort of, the jury's sort of out. We know they do addition and then subtraction and then multiplication mm -hmm. sort of builds up upon each other. Yeah. For programming, yeah, what do you do first? Mm -hmm. A loop or a condition yeah, or a variable? Right. They are orthogonal in mm -hmm. a sense. Mm -hmm. They don't really depend on each other. Yeah. And the issues with a loop is that the instruction pointer goes back up in a sense. Mm -hmm. Whereas first you've taught the children, oh, the, co the uh, compiler reads from top to mm -hmm. bottom. And then now you go back. Yeah. That is hard. But for a condition, not all lines are executed. Mm -hmm. That is hard. You have to mentally yeah. disable lines it, it, It's in a your lot, brain. yeah. <laughs> but a variable also has, uh, has lots and lots of different complications. Mm -hmm. Misconceptions is how we call them. Ways that you can misunderstand the variable. Mm -hmm. There's so much research about how you can misunderstand the variable. Mm -hmm. If you have lots of experience already with mathematics, you might think that a variable can only hold one value. Mm. Because in, in, a, in a proof in mathematics, you say, oh, delta is 0.1. You don't go in the middle of your proof, haha, now delta is 12. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's just, a, it's not really a variable. It's more a constant in the scope mm -hmm. of, a, of a problem right. or a proof. So if you come from math background, you might think that the variable can only hold, hold one value. Mm -hmm. And some children think that. Some children think that if variables are created, they have a default value. They are always zero, for example. Mm -hmm. ah, it makes sense. We could have made programming languages in such a case that everything starts with uh, an in, a value. Mm -hmm. I mean, Tony Hoare has said that null values were his billion-dollar mistake. Mm -hmm. So maybe right. variables should have an initial value mm -hmm. by default. It's mm -hmm. not... It's not wrong thinking in mm -hmm. a sense that that could be the way it works. Yeah. So variables also have lots of issues. So where would you start? Yeah. It is not easy. Right. So you're still still trying to work on that problem. Yeah. So yeah. I can tell you what we do now. In the, mm -hmm. I teach in a, Python in a high school. Mm -hmm. And in Netherlands, high school start at 12. So they're a bit younger than people might typically expect from the American system. Mm -hmm. And there we start with variables and then conditions and then loops. That's the order mm. we have now. Okay. Um, because variables allow you to build many interesting things initially. So mm -hmm. that's nice. And conditions keep the mental model alive that the code goes from top to bottom, mm -hmm. which is really something that students struggle with. Mm. So I want to train that as much as possible yeah. before I have to break it right. with a for loop. So they, right. then I can say, okay, remember how everything goes from top to bottom. It is almost mm -hmm. true. Do not forget it. <laughs> it's just, it was a tiny line, not yeah. a big one. <laughs> but I don't know if that's the best way. And these type of things are very hard mm -hmm. to measure. If you have a small intervention, like um, you use JavaScript and you use Python for three weeks, mm -hmm. that is easy to measure. But if you have um, such a trajectory, mm -hmm. you have five weeks of a variable and then five weeks of a loop, maybe you know, five weeks of a condition, mm -hmm. you get a very, very long running study. And then there's lots of risk of contamination because... The students, if it's in one school, maybe they, they talk to each other. Mm -hmm. If you have, ideally, you would have randomized groups, but then that means they're in the same school. Mm. So then they might learn from each other. You cannot prevent uh, them from yeah. chatting yeah. with each other. <laughs> Whereas if you say we do one group in one school and one group in the other school, mm -hmm. schools are different. Yes. Absolutely. Teachers are different. Right. Conditions are different absolutely. across schools. Mm -hmm. So the bigger the idea is that you want to test, yeah. the harder it is to do it in it. In a pure way. I mean, right. ideally, mm -hmm. I would kidnap 300 children, <laughs> lock them in my university and teach them for 10 yeah. years and then measure the difference. But my ethics committee will not let me. Yeah, yeah. You might get some amazing programmers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. or they will all be traumatized. Mm, that too. Could yeah. be. <laughs>
so how would you compare, you know, this experience of teaching high schoolers to, you know, someone who's older? Um, do you think it's the same? Should you follow the same process, or do you think it's different depending on how young you, young you are? Oh, that's a very good question. So there's quite some research that says that if people learn a new skill, then they will fall back to behaving like a baby, basically. Mm. You have the development levels of Piaget, mm -hmm. and the lowest level is called the sensory motor level. Okay. Imagine a baby has no hypothesis of the world, just grabbing stuff mm. to figure <laughs> stuff out. So neo-Piagetism says that if you're learning a new skill, you will basically behave like a baby. Okay. And I, I recognize that in programming. So if I, if I learn a new programming language. Mm -hmm. I did an Elm workshop a while ago and I, I hadn't done Elm before. I look at Elm, I'm like, ooh, I see something, an equal sign. Yeah. And I, I grab onto it like a baby. I'm yeah. like, I see something <laughs> I know. I am unable mm -hmm. to read a whole program yeah. or even a line of Elm mm -hmm. at once mm. because it's it's too much. Mm -hmm. So I, I really recognize that sensory motor level of, oh, I can see tiny pieces. Yeah. I, I do not see everything at mm -hmm. once, whereas I see a Python program of a hundred lines. Right. I can scan in and more or less see what's going on. Yeah. So I think that hypothesis is very true. And I think mm -hmm. that the most things that we know that work for young kids mm -hmm. also work for learners if they're novices, if they're really I at see. the beginning of right. their career. Okay. Okay. So that, that would argue for there's no difference. But there's quite some differences in my experience mm. between teaching high schoolers or elementary schoolers and undergrads. Mm -hmm. But that more has to do with their self-image mm. and their image of each other. Because if an eight-year-old is confused, they will tell you. Uh, they will be like, I hate this. Yeah. I do not understand anything <laughs> yeah. you said to me. Uh -huh. They will tell you, especially if it's in a, in a co-club. They mm -hmm. come there voluntarily. They, don't, they do not have to come back. They'll yeah. just say, I'm never coming back to your stupid club. I hate this. <laughs> It just it hurts, but it is very yeah. useful. Yeah, um, yeah. They, they will they will assume it's about you. They mm -hmm. will they will have not internalized that if they mm -hmm. don't learn it's about them. Yeah. Whereas undergrads, especially if you're teaching it in a good school, mm -hmm. then they will have this self image of being smart. Mm. So and often they go to high through high school not studying a lot because they're the smart kids, and then they come <laughs> into a computer science program and everyone is smart. Mm -hmm. So if they don't understand something, they'll just go home and cry in their dorm. <laughs> They will not tell you that they hate your stupid lecture yeah. and that they're never coming back. Mm -hmm. If they're never coming back, they just do that. Right. So in that sense, it's really very, very different because you do not get that feedback. Mm -hmm. You can ask a group of undergrads, yeah. have you understood everything? And then they're like, yes, teach, we understood yeah. everything. Yeah. Thank you for the lecture. Mm -hmm. So that's very different. And we know, especially yeah. again, talking about minority students, we know that girls already at the age of eight or nine have internalized this programming and technology is not for me. Mm. And this is very much true also for all the, the older you get as a girl mm -hmm. in this world, the harder it gets. Yeah. Because the more you have been exposed to books and TV shows and mm -hmm. ads saying, not for you, programming is mm -hmm. not for you. It's only for white boys. Mm. So that makes it even harder if you're older to ask questions. Mm -hmm. I've, I've had this, I've told a, an undergrad course where a female student asked a stupid quote-unquote question that she might have known before had she also been programming for 10 years. Mm -hmm. And then the whole lecture hall is like, <sighs> oh, how yeah. can you not know this? Mm -hmm. And then they will never ask a question. Yeah, again. So that yeah. is really an issue. And it has nothing to do with those cognitive levels of understanding. Right. It just has to do with what the world has already mm -hmm. thrown at them. How do you think we can sort of change that culture or change that perception? Yeah, that's very hard. It, as I said, it's so much survivorship bias. So most people that are here have have learned it in that way. I think code boot camps is there. They like everything have some pros and cons. They have mm -hmm. some issues, but one of the things definitely beneficial about boot camps is that they are bringing in people that learn programming when they were. 20 or yeah. 30 or 40, mm -hmm. and they're coming into the community. We are recording this at the Strange Loop conference, and I spoke to many people this week, said, oh, I came into programming as a boot camp. Mm -hmm. That dilutes the self-learners in a mm -hmm. sense, so that changes the population, yeah. and that will also change the way people view education, because people mm -hmm. that went through a boot camp have an image of how they learn programming. It mm -hmm. might be 
last year. So they have a really good image. Yeah. yeah. So that is definitely one of the things that might change your opinion. Mm -hmm. But also I like to think that the things I say in talks, like road memorization is really important if you're learning programming. I hope that also changes people's perspective to a certain extent mm. that if they start teaching their children or other people's children that they think, oh, maybe I shouldn't just hand out the basic listings. Maybe mm -hmm. I should just explain the basic elements, the important syntactic pitfalls and the important concepts, explain mm -hmm. it to all the kids. So okay. that also kids that are nervous to ask a question or to just have no background mm -hmm. have a fair chance of getting the information. Yeah. Um, I kind of want to go a little bit more into the rote memorization. So I think a, a lot of people are familiar from school rote memorization, trying to remember how to spell words or, or, things, or the multiplication tables, things like that. What does uh, rote memorization look like in the context of programming? Yeah, that's a really good question. We don't know exactly. <laughs> We've tried some things, but the, the most important thing for now, I think, is first as programming community to accept the fact that road memorization might be a thing that mm. will actually work mm -hmm. in programming. So first I want to spend a little bit of time explaining why it works so well. So why do we make children spell out letters? Mm -hmm. It's because they then automate spelling the letters and that frees up mental room to then read words at once. Mm -hmm. After a while, you don't have to do book anymore. You can just do it at once mm -hmm. and then even with sentences. The same is true for the tables of multiplication. Why do, you why do we have people still road memorize seven times six? Yeah, but you have a calculator on your iPhone. But the fact that you can do seven times six is 42 at once, that frees up mental room to make bigger calculations that if you see seven times six anywhere, you're like, oh, that's 42, I can do it. Mm -hmm. So that's the value of road memorization. It isn't necessarily that you have to memorize all these values because yes, you can look up, you can look it up with Google. Mm -hmm. It is that it allows you to build bigger program, mm -hmm. build bigger structures. In the same way we think that it will work for programming because if it doesn't take you any mental effort to write a for loop, if I am in Python, I tell this to my high schoolers, if I sneak into your room in the middle of the night and I wake you up, <laughs> what do you say? Four I in range, open bracket four, closing bracket, go on. <laughs> they can do this. And I tell mm. them, you have to be able to do this. Yeah. Just like the tables mm -hmm. of multiplication. Why? Because mm. they're solving a problem and their brain is already mm -hmm. full with oh, I have to reverse an array. There's mm -hmm. almost no space. Then it should take them zero effort to produce the syntax for a for loop because then that takes no effort. Mm -hmm. And then, oh, nested loops, that takes no effort because it's just a loop, which they know, mm -hmm. inside another loop. Yeah. So it's really all about having, we talked about that in my keynote yesterday, chunks, having these elements in your brain that you can easily access with no or hardly any mental efforts. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, people in programming will say, yeah, but you can Google the syntax. Yes, but if you're in the middle of, everyone knows this feeling, like you're in the middle of a problem, and it's very annoying if you have to then look something up, or mm -hmm. then your compiler says, oh, this is wrong. Yeah. And of course, if you're an expert, you can, you can keep it in your brain. You're like, oh, I missed the closing brackets, mm -hmm. without losing everything. But yeah. especially if you're a beginner, a compiler telling you there's a spelling error, or a syntax error, mm -hmm. it will just break the whole house of cards in mm -hmm. your brain. So that's that's why we think that road memorization of syntax is really mm -hmm. very important. And we do this in a almost a drill style where kids have to, have to be able, as I said, if I shake them awake in the middle of the night, <laughs> to produce Python syntax by voice. Yeah, so I think that was also one of the things you mentioned in your keynote was the importance, at least within a classroom setting, of, of having the students actually say the syntax, right? Which I thought was interesting. Yeah, so one of the things, how do you do road memorization? Mm -hmm. Well, doing this vocally is a thing that works really well. Also for math, we do the tables of multiplication, we say them aloud. Mm -hmm. Doesn't and you could also do it in silence, but it's easier and more effective if you do this aloud. Mm -hmm. we, we suspect the same thing is true for programming. So indeed, we did a study where half of the group read code aloud with us in mm -hmm. this multiplication table, all the group at one style, mm -hmm. and the other group did not do that. And the first group did better on the syntax that, mm -hmm. test at the end of the lesson lecture series. Yeah, so basically applying things that we have used for generations, but applying it to programming in it 
turns out it works. Yeah, yeah, it's not very surprising. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but then again, it's also cool because it it goes against what people in programming believe in mm. general because mm-hmm. they believe, oh, it's not about syntax. Mm-hmm. You can just look that up. Mm. It should be fun. You should solve problems. Mm. So it is, on the one side, it's not very surprising, but it also forces us as programming community to accept that yeah, we are like everyone else. It's not mm-hmm. like programming is this magical thing that's mm-hmm. really different. No, it's just like math and just like language. Yeah. Earlier, you were talking about how boot camps are bringing in a lot of people who you know weren't programming as a kid. You know, they're coming in, getting more sort of direct instruction, things like that. I wanted to sort of go into what you think the role of traditional uh, computer science education is now that there are so many options, whether that's a boot camp or that's an online course or self-study, that sort of thing. Yeah, that's a very good question. And it's very hard, of course, to talk about that if you're also a university professor (laughs) in a computer science department. Because many of the things I say are like about my own students and Mm -hmm. colleagues. But I think in general, everywhere in the world, computer science programs are struggling with who are we teaching? Mm -hmm. Who do we want our students to be at the end of the course? Mm -hmm. Because many universities, especially initially early in programming education, they were educating scientists, computer mm-hmm. scientists. Uh, right. <laughs> so, and now we say people are computer scientists, but they're actually a programmer. So mm-hmm. ma- many programs are still very much developed. Also the program at Leiden where I teach to instruct people to be a scientist. Okay. So they need to know about algorithms and mm-hmm. data structures because that's what you need for science. Yeah. Uh, I know there are professors that say, oh, we don't teach the use of an IDE mm-hmm. because they, they can learn to use an IDE if they go to industry. Mm-hmm. Whereas, on the other hand, industry wants people that just know programming. Mm-hmm. They, they want people to know front-end development and they do want them to know IDEs and right. code reviews and mm-hmm. refactoring skills. Mm-hmm. And then there's this tension between wanting to teach scientists mm-hmm. And the scientific methods and yeah. reproducibility and stuff that's mm-hmm. important in science and just quickly getting programmers in mm-hmm. industry. Yeah. And I think many programs across the world, I, I, as I said, also my own program, have this sort of schizophrenic view of, yeah, but it shouldn't be too much practice. Mm-hmm. We, want, we still want them to be scientists. Where right. if you look at the statistics, I don't know, I don't have the numbers, but 20% maybe of computer science graduate students go to be, do a PhD and oh, and, and then even fewer, of course, really go on to science. Yeah. And after the PhD, many people with a PhD, they still go into industry. So most mm-hmm. of our graduates actually go into industry, whereas mm. the programs are, are leaning towards creating scientists. Right. So maybe that's not an answer to what is the role of, of mm-hmm. university mm-hmm. programs, but that's maybe an answer of the, why is there a problem? Mm-hmm. We also want to recruit scientists. We want to teach for that. But mm-hmm. industry has different requests from universities. So I do think there's still tremendous value in getting a, a university degree. I, I still have lots of use for the things I learned in university. Mm-hmm. I took like five compiler courses. I don't know why I should have taken a history and philosophy course, <laughs> but I was like, oh, I love compilers. But it's very, very nice because we were talking about chunks. If I see a problem, I... I can think, oh, this is a problem that needs its own programming language. Mm -hmm. It's a tool I know I can use, and that's a very valuable skill. So I'm still very happy about my education, and I think it told me many things. But I can see how boot camps also have value, especially in a time where some professions aren't all in that demand anymore. Maybe at one point we'll have self-driving cars and then taxi drivers and truck drivers need to do something else. And there's a huge shortage Mm -hmm. in programmers. So it's great if they can go to a six-month booth camp and find a job that they like and that Mm -hmm. pays well. I don't think it's the one or the other. Yeah. Um, What do you, do you think that the, because you were saying that maybe 20% of the students that go through your program end up going into higher education, right? Getting PhDs. For the students who, you know, plan to go into industry right after school, um, you know, would you still recommend that they go for, you know, a full computer science program? 
Yeah, it would be weird if I said no. <laughs> but I guess it also very much depends on where you live and what your personal situation is. Mm -hmm. Because going to university, especially in the U.S., can be very, very expensive. Yes, yes. So it might not be worth it. Mm -hmm. In the country where I live, um, tuition is 2,000 euros a year. Wow. <laughs> that's that, cheap. That's, that's really cheap. <laughs> we think it's pretty expensive. It used to be cheaper <laughs> when I was in university. But that's a way different equation yeah. than the thing. So in, in the Netherlands, I would say, yeah, sure. Yeah, mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. I see, yeah. And also in our situation, expectations are different because most people will expect that you went to university because uh -huh. why wouldn't you? Right. It's not that expensive. Right, yeah. Um, so it, it very much depends on where you are. And yeah. Yeah, so it's um yeah, I guess that's a that's an interesting point that if if education is, you know, pretty inexpensive, you know, very accessible, um then like you said, why wouldn't you do it? And I think, you know, here in the US, you could go to university and you could end up, you know, by the time you get out, you could have a hundred grand in student debt, right? And so that's yeah, that's an that's a perspective I hadn't really thought about that um, you know, other countries maybe the decision decision isn't as hard to make. Um yeah, at least it's a different decision. Yeah, yeah. Uh another thing I, I, I kind of am curious about is do you think that because you were saying that industry is expecting certain things like how to do how to use an IDE or how to do code review, how to do version control. Uh do you think that these concepts should be taught in university? Yes. Okay. And That's an easy question. Yeah, yeah. And then and, and not just because industry, but also because science. I also want my PhD students to know mm -hmm. about version control mm -hmm. because it's a very handy skill Definitely. if you're writing a script. For example, we had another paper where we uh, we downloaded 250,000 scratch programs mm -hmm. and we wrote a static source code analysis tool to analyze those programs. Yeah. So that's that's pretty engineering mm -hmm. work. So I want that script also to be version controlled because mm. at one point you're looking at the paper like, hey, that's a weird value. Mm -hmm. Let me look up the data set and let me look up the code that actually produced this value. Mm -hmm. So lots of science, lots of computer science is also engineering work. Mm. So I think those skills are not just valuable because mm -hmm. people need them in industry. Right. Everyone needs, if you're programming, you need version control. You need good command of an IDE. Stupid stuff like, the shortcut for quickly commenting out a number of lines mm -hmm. of, uh, of code. I have this in my exam. I ask in the exam, what is the shortcut for commenting out code? Uh. <laughs> I get some shit from some people because yeah. like, yeah, it, it shouldn't be a button course about what uh -huh. buttons to use. Yeah. But this is a tool, again, that you can use because if you're debugging a hard program, you're like, oh, I don't know what to do. I want to comment out these 10 lines. Mm -hmm. If that means you have to go in front of every line and put a hashtag there, yeah, yeah. then you're not going to do that. It, it's not going to be the first thing you try mm -hmm. because it will take much effort. But if you know you can select the lines and you can do command question mark, yeah. then it takes way less energy. So mm -hmm. that means that that's a tool you can grab from your toolbox mm -hmm. more easily. Yeah. So stuff like that, it's just not because industry tells me I need to mm -hmm. do this, but because it's just a valuable tool for programming definitely. whatever you will do with programming. Yeah, and I, I definitely agree. And what I would also kind of ask is, so because you were saying at your university now, you teach all of these things, right? Um, when you went through school yourself, um, let's say when you did undergraduate, did they teach any of these kinds of concepts? No, not really. Mm. I wish I had made notes of going to university now. I mm. wish I had a diary yeah. of all the things they taught me. Yeah, because yeah. I want to say, no, they never show me. Uh -huh. But I don't know, 100% sure. Right. Because definitely <laughs> I ended up at the end of, of undergrad or yes. let's say at the end of my master's, yeah. definitely knowing mm -hmm. about version control, knowing mm -hmm. about refactoring support and knowing yeah. about uh, all these IDE tricks and putting breakpoints. Mm -hmm. But... I don't think we learned something like breakpoints. I don't mm. think I learned that. I know yeah. we had one course that was like a project course, and I think there was some version control. It was mm -hmm. still subversion because I'm that old. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I don't know if I learned this like from a teammate that already knew this or yeah. from a lecture. But breakpoints and debugging certainly there wasn't a course on it. Yeah, I mean, I, I in my own experience when I did a bachelor's program, um, they did not teach version control. They did not teach debugging. Um, they did not teach the IDE. It was kind of sort of the fundamental concepts, like you would learn about data structures or compilers and so on. 
Um, and they actually, you know, they they and some people would think this is a good thing. You know, they said, oh, you can use uh, whatever language you want. Um, but because they did that, they also weren't able to really teach to a specific language. Um, and so I think it's, I don't know, I, I don't know how you sort of balance giving students the freedom to do what they want, but at the same time also be able to give them the tools so that, you know, they can, they know what to do. Yeah, and especially about the programming language, because there's also some research that shows that the programming language you know also influences the choices you make. Mm-hmm. There's a super cool study by a German guy called Lutz Prechselt, and he had students implement a tree algorithm mm-hmm. um, in, and then students with a background in different programming languages mm-hmm. and then all the Python students are like, oh, sure, you use ASHMAP and all mm-hmm. the Java students mm-hmm. are like, no, you use a dictionary or something sure, like yeah. that. So they, they use different data structures mm-hmm. because, mm-hmm. and it's not that just because the programming language doesn't support them mm-hmm. because programming languages, anything yeah. supports a tree. It is because the culture mm-hmm. of, Absolutely, of yeah. the one programming language says hash map. That's the thing you would always use. Mm-hmm. And the other programming language says dictionary. That's yeah. what you would typically pick. So teaching a, a course without a programming language is also sort of weird because there is this relationship between the programming language and the data structure mm-hmm. that you might not be aware of otherwise. I also think maybe even teaching a little bit about the concept of open source and having people understand um, these libraries that you're using, kind of where they come from, and you can actually look at the source for them, that sort of thing. I kind of wonder if maybe if that should be discussed in, in studies. Yeah. So on the one hand side, I want to say, yes, we want to teach students about open source. But on the other hand side... Open source is such a toxic community. <laughs> I mean, Linus and Richard Stallman, and they're all quite terrible. Mm. And not just that they're terrible. I mean, that's already terrible. But they continue to be terrible for decades. Mm. Women and black people continue to point out how terrible they are. There was this, you know, Stallman was in the news on Twitter again this week for defending Epstein. Mm. The, and... No one I know that's not a white man is surprised. They're like, yeah, we've been saying he's an asshole forever. Mm-hmm. And li- same thing with Linus Torvalds. Yeah. They're assholes, but not only do they remain in the community, they are defended mm-hmm. by I basically everyone. Yeah. So for that reason, I would be very, very reluctant mm-hmm. to teach open source mm. because I know what I will be exposing my female students to. Mm. I wouldn't feel very happy about that. Mm-hmm. I guess even, you know, well, I guess one of the things I would say is maybe one of the reasons why, you know, there is this level of toxicity is maybe because of the people who are contributing, right? And I wonder, like, what, you know, should we be educating so that we can get more people, um, you know, who are different? Right yeah. into open source. Yeah, yeah. That's that. This is a very good question, and this is all, almost a question of uh, institutional change in general. Mm-hmm. Like, should we bring in more women so that other women after them have an easier job? Mm-hmm. Should we take this institution, whether it's academia or industry mm-hmm. or open source, yeah. should we take it as it is and try to change it a little bit mm-hmm. by having? a front group right. of people changing yeah. the culture slightly? Uh-huh. Or should we just say, well, this thing was just shit from the beginning. Mm. Let's burn into the ground and build something <laughs> new. So I don't know. Yeah. It's very hard mm-hmm. because many of those institutions have just existed for a long time. Yeah. But changing the fundament mm-hmm. of something is really very hard. Yeah. And Putting it on people to say, "Oh, let's let's all go into open source to change yeah. it a little bit." It will, yeah. it will take lots and lots of energy. So for, for me, sure. looking at open source has mm-hmm. never been worth it because mm. I I look at, I I see how it is and mm. and I don't feel it. I get enough shit for just being a female professor in the computer science department. I don't need that extra shit. Yeah. But I totally see what you're saying. That yeah, if we wanted to change, mm-hmm. only saying it's shit might not change anything. But yeah, can't fight anything. I guess yeah. you just have to make changes. You pick pick your battles. Mm-hmm, definitely. I guess the next thing I would ask is, you know, you've been teaching for um, how long now? What years? Twenty nineteen, twenty thirteen. <laughs> six years in six years in the university. Six years in university. So, um, how would you say that your 
teaching style or what you choose to teach has changed over the years? Oh, that's a great question. I should write a blog post about that. <laughs> um, so definitely the direct instruction approach. So mm. explaining stuff mm-hmm. that I'm doing, uh, m- modeling. So telling students, hey, I'm making this decision now and that's because such and such. Mm. I'm also relying more and more on life coding in class. Oh. So rather than having slides with syntax, yeah. I was preparing yeah. for a course, a new Python course last week. And I was like, oh, everything I'm preparing is just code snippets. Mm-hmm. I, don't have, I don't have slides. I have a bunch of slides, like these are the deadlines yeah. and, and administrative stuff. But then all my explanation, it's all in the, brow- all in the ID. Uh, so yeah. it's just use a code snippet. This is how yeah, you run it. This yeah. is a variable. Mm-hmm. And that allows me to interact mm-hmm. immediately with the code. And yeah. that also allows me to, from the beginning, show them IDE shortcuts, for example. Mm, oh, yeah. this is how you start your code. We use Visual mm-hmm. Studio Code. This is how you start your code. It is yeah. Fn, F5. Mm-hmm. You start the code with a keyboard shortcut. Right. So you don't have to right-click, yeah. run the code. Yeah, yeah. So then they can see this is how Felina uses the IDE. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, I don't need that line. I'll command it out. Yeah. <laughs> command question mark. So they pick that up and it also allows you, if students have a question, mm-hmm. great questions. Like, um, oh, it was, this, it was such a great question. Oh yeah, this was about refactoring. Mm-hmm. So I was showing how to refactor a variable name. And then one of the students says, can you also refactor a, a string constant? Mm. <laughs> can you right click it and then refactor yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. I was like, that's a good question. Let's see what happens if uh-huh. we try it. Yeah. So you can immediately re- react to that. And that, I thought that was very interesting. And then he said, oh, I thought it was a stupid question. I was like, no, it's a great question. Mm-hmm. I can imagine several scenarios where you want to refactor your string constants yeah. because you've changed the name of something. Mm-hmm. You also want the labels to go with that to also change. Yeah. So I was like, no, it doesn't work like that. But Mm-hmm. In a while, you can build your own programming language and you can make something where it does work like that. Yeah. So that life coding is very valuable, but I wouldn't necessarily recommend this to beginning teachers, mm, beginning okay. professors, because you need to be really quite knowledgeable about the programming language and about your programming tools, right. which is not that easy if you're an academic. Maybe you don't have that much programming experience mm-hmm. or you need to make room in your schedule to learn all yeah. the tools. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you'll make mistakes. Mm-hmm. I have tried to implement bubble sorts uh-huh. in an, in a yeah. course, and then yeah. I made a stupid mistake. There was something wrong with my right. with my loop condition, mm-hmm. and then it mm-hmm. just broke. And then yeah. you're like, oh, now what do I do? <laughs> and then of course one student says, yeah, but you should change that into a bigger and larger uh-huh. than equal or yeah, something. I'm like, yeah. oh, that's it. Well, thank yeah. you. Yeah. You move on. But so you also need that self confidence. Right. So it's not a thing. I don't, I don't think it's bad. I didn't do that six years ago. I think mm-hmm. it was a good decision. Yeah. But once you can do it, you you can really teach many things in that context. Mm-hmm. And I guess in doing so, did you actually do you actually practice sort of what you're going to do in class? You know, as far as the live coding session, or is it more you just know what you're going to do and so you just do it? Yeah. So I do practice a bit. Okay. So I have these uh, all these files. They're all small files, mm-hmm. and they're like file one underscore and then a name of what I'm yeah. going to do. So I, there is a line, mm-hmm. a buildup in what I'm going to do. I see. So there is some, I run all the code before and I mm-hmm. put some, I hide some code snippets <laughs> in the back of the, in the underneath the file yeah. at the end, <laughs> underneath some new lines so yeah. they don't see it. But if I'm really stuck, I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. I'm stuck. I'm just going to get this code yeah. snippet from my secret stash. Yep. So you need some preparation. But of course, mm-hmm. also if you make slides, you need some preparation. Yeah, so. yeah. And um, I mean, I, I kind of, I, I guess it goes both ways in terms of uh, when, I think when you make mistakes, um, I think maybe the students will see a little bit of themselves as well, you know, or they'll, they'll see your thought process, yeah, that sort of thing. Yeah, and if I make a tiny mistake and I sort of know what I did wrong, mm-hmm. then I, it's definitely a learning opportunity yeah. for the students. Yeah. That, because then I can just focalize and say, okay, I'm stuck. Mm-hmm. I also don't know what to do. So yeah. what am I going to do? Okay, I'm just going to comment out everything mm-hmm. except for the first line. Okay, that still works. Next yeah. line. Or, okay, I'm going to put a breakpoint there and mm-hmm. inspect the variable. So it can definitely be a learning experience. Yeah. Because this is something we, we don't talk about. I think mm-hmm. many, you're, you're, you're describing your experience very representative of many undergrad programs where they say, oh, this is data structures, but you don't really get experience in Practice practical mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah. So a course about hey, I'm stuck. What do you do now? Right. That that's lacking in many undergrad programs. So that is this situation is an mm-hmm. opportunity where you can say okay, everything is broken. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, it's. Um, I guess it depends on the language, but yeah, like you said, live coding I think is really helpful just to see someone solve something, right, or walk through a process. Um, I also think that um, REPLs are really helpful too. Is like being able to type something in and see immediately, you know, what the result is supposed to be. Um, so yeah, to me, it makes a lot of sense to you know to have live coding and to you know not just do slides because ultimately that's what the person will be doing when they they go back and they work on their project or their homework. They're going to be going through the same things you are. Yeah, definitely. And actually, one hybrid thing I use. Um, this is for teaching in a high school. There we have slides that are online on slides.com. Hmm. Super nice. They're not paying me to say <laughs> this. Uh, and there you can make slides, but you can also embed code in the slides. Uh. So we actually embed from a website called Replit. That okay. This is a REPL in the browser. Yeah. We embed code within the slides. So you can have a slide and then you click to the next slide and then there's Python. Yeah. And you hit run within the slides Ooh. and it runs there. You can change the code in the slides. That is, that's really it cool. Runs. So that's, uh, I, I prepared lesson materials for another teacher in, mm-hmm. in the high school that's not a computer science graduate. Yeah. He's a, he has a math degree, so mm-hmm. he knows some things, but not all. Mm-hmm. And he uses those slides and that works really well because it's a nice combination of he doesn't have to know everything because some stuff is in the slides, mm-hmm. but the students still get this experience of seeing code running and they can ask questions like, hey, what this this do? He also doesn't know, but that's mm-hmm. fine because they can try yeah, together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think specifically in the context, if you're not a very experienced uh, computer science person mm-hmm. yourself, you're not an mm-hmm. experienced programmer, then you can also have this hybrid form of some life coding, mm-hmm. then it's not that scary. Yeah, definitely. I guess the next thing I'd like to talk about is, um, so we're, we're both hosts on the Software Engineering Radio podcast. Um, you've been podcasting for, I, I think, over three years, right? True, yeah. True yeah. So what, what excited you or what got you interested in podcasting? So one of the things that's really cool is you get to meet amazing people. It's so cool. You just send someone an email like, hey, can I interview you for my podcast? And they'll say, yeah, sure. I will. I have one and a half hours to chat with mm-hmm. you about what I'm an expert in. Yeah. So clearly that's a great, uh, great uh, opportunity Definitely. to talk to people that otherwise you wouldn't talk to. And it's also a really good way to make me learn stuff. Because we do lots of preparation for a show, Mm -hmm. you have to ask the right questions. You're not going to get an expert on, say, okay, tell me about your topic. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. (laughs) Let me think of a new question about that. But you have to prepare. So Mm -hmm. very often we get books, for example, from publishers. We want to interview someone about their book. You read the book. You ask really, you think of really good questions and ask them. So it's it's really a learning opportunity. Mm I guess, is it similar to the reason why you give conference talks? Yeah, I think maybe it's the opposite because one of the reasons I like giving conference talks is I like to I like for people to know about my work. Ah, uh, yeah. Because the normal way that scientists make sure people know about their work mm-hmm. is you write a paper and then and maybe a journalist reads your paper mm-hmm. and like a science journalist yeah. and they write a book about it. Mm-hmm. It ends up in someone else's talk. That's very yeah. indirect. So mm-hmm. I like to speak about my work because... I mean, my best-cited paper has 161 citations. Mm. My keynote yesterday, there were maybe 2,000 people in the audience. Mm-hmm. So clearly this is a yeah. good investment of my time. <laughs> so I wouldn't say it's the same because conference talks are really about me tell, talking about me, see. my work. Whereas the podcasting is more me being a student again. Yeah, so tell yeah. me more about this. I am so interested. That's really cool. It's kind of like the conference talk is where you're the expert. And yeah. you're kind of telling people, hey, this is what I learned. And the podcast is the opposite. It's you telling, uh, you know, the expert, "Hey, teach me about this thing that you you know a Absolutely, lot about." Absolutely, yeah. So it's, yeah. it's like being a student again, which is a mm-hmm. good uh, a good experience. If you're a teacher, then you're like, ah, oh, learning is hard. It's yeah. good to remember that. Also. Yeah, that's really cool. And also, of course, we get to pick our own topics mm-hmm. and our own guests. So being on the podcast, especially at Software Engineering Radio, is a pretty big podcast. So if you're a host, you can also shape what people listen to. Mm-hmm. You have a decision on who is being interviewed. For example, I try to interview women, female hosts often mm-hmm. because I think those are voices we don't hear enough. Mm-hmm. So it also helps me shape the community mm-hmm. because we have a pretty big listener, pretty big audience. So that's also nice to be able to mm-hmm. help shape the, what community looks like and who Definitely. we see or listen in this case as mm-hmm. experts. So over the course of these three years, what have you learned in terms of interviewing people or what do you do differently now? 
Oh, that's also a great question. I don't think I do many things differently because those shows are really all about the export. So mm-hmm. the basic setup is always like, who are you? Why are you excited about this? Tell me more in depth. So yeah. I, I don't think I play a big role in those interviews. Of mm-hmm. course, behind the scenes, I have my ideas and my questions. Mm-hmm. But in a sense, it's really very much about centering the other person. So mm-hmm. I don't think I have changed that much because every show is different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How about the the topics you decide to tackle? You know, have you noticed any kind of trend in the the things you choose, or is it? Yeah, so many have been about education or related topics. So mm-hmm. we, I did one on code schools, on boot camps. Mm. So that's I think uh, an interesting topic that's very close to what I'm interested in. Definitely, I'm also very interested in code quality. So mm-hmm. I also did some shows on testing, mm-hmm. and refactoring with Martin Fowler. So. Uh, sorry, Michael Feathers. Uh, so stuff like that is really interesting to me, and I, I know a lot about the research on that. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah. th- that is what I like. And also I think I've had lots of scientists in my show mm, because, yeah. as I said, people don't really read your papers. So if you have an opportunity to get a scientist to speak to developers directly through mm-hmm. the podcast. So I've also had a few scientists that do really interesting things like with um, image recognition and mm-hmm. very recently genetic programming. Yeah, so Automatic program repair is a super cool technique that I think not enough programmers know about this technique. So then I'm like, oh, everyone should do this. And I'm, I try to do that through the Definitely. Yeah, the automatic program repair, I, I listened to the episode and I thought, wow, this this sounds like magic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh, the program is fixing itself. Yeah, That's yeah. really cool. That's awesome. Is there anything else that you, you think we should have talked about or that you're excited to, to mention? No, I think we covered mostly. Very cool. Felina, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Felina. You can get links to her keynote and research in the show notes or at softwaresessions.com. If you liked it, tell someone about the show and leave us a review. See ya.